morning we're looking at the fatherhood of God. The sermon title is Our Father Who, and it's subtitled, The Judge of All the Earth and the Father of His People. The Judge of All the Earth and the Father of His People. I wanted us to look this morning at this reality that there is much confusion, much confusion in the church and in the world regarding these titles of God. You know, one of the things that you do when you go to a seminary is you take a course called systematics or systematic theology. And as you study systematic theology, there are three major areas that you study. One of the major areas is God and man. And when you study God, you study his epithets, his titles, his names, his attributes. And you spend an entire semester, because there are that many of them, and you only begin to scratch the surface of his titles and of his glories, of his honors, and of his names that are set forth. The disciples of Jesus came to him, and they asked him, Teach us to pray. And the Son, as he thought about all the nature and attributes and titles of God, said, This is how you should pray. Our Father. He was addressing people who are the children of God. And he said, for you, you call him Father. Of all the things that he could have said to call upon him. And it's very significant that we would come to understand that. We actually don't get that picture quite so clear in the Old Testament. There is, it's not because God has changed his mind, it's because God is wise and good And he recognizes the idea of progressive revelation. He's teaching us something about himself. And he recognizes that the most common thing in the days of Moses is a gross misunderstanding of who God is. The common thing in the days of Moses is a gross misunderstanding to think that God is like us, that he's really just a superman. And so God comes down and makes it perfectly clear by the trembling on Mount Sinai that he's nothing like man. And the lightning flashes and the trumpet sounds and the people tremble in darkness and they fear God. He's trying to communicate to them that he's not like the pagan gods. He's nothing like the Greek and Roman gods. And so he does an excellent job of communicating that, including in ways that we see his holiness set forth as David moves the ark. You remember from uh, one area, he uh, he wants to move it to Jerusalem and as he does, he moves it inappropriately, irreverently, And God strikes dead one of the men who are walking alongside trying to steady the ark, whose name is Uzzah. And fear falls upon everyone again. And again, we fail to grasp in those kinds of settings, we fail to grasp the goodness and the fatherliness and the kindness and the personal nature of who God is. Because God is wanting to demonstrate who He is and how critical it is that we have a biblical picture of fatherhood. And so having demonstrated all those things, the God of the universe comes down and becomes man and walks among us in meekness and kindness and fondness and lowliness. And we discover this. As Jesus begins to teach about God again and again and again, you'll notice that when he speaks to the people of God, he constantly refers to God as Father. And when he speaks to the Sanhedrin and to the Pharisees, he does not. He does not refer to God as Father to them. In fact, on one occasion in John chapter 6, he says to the Pharisees, your father the devil. 
But God refers to, Christ refers to His Father as Father. And He not only does that, He encourages us to think of Him and to address Him as Father. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? Throughout the Gospel of John, there are repeated references, more in the Gospel of John than in the other Gospels, repeated references to God as Father. And in John chapter 17, is the great high priestly prayer of Christ praying about His own relationship with the Father and specifically praying for the people of God. And probably we won't read all of it, but for now, let's pick up in chapter 17 at verse 20. The words of Christ. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved me, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Will you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would give us wisdom and understanding now of this your title, Father, that we, your people, would come to understand this and to embrace it and to delight in it. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we think about fatherhood, we think of various examples in the Scripture of fathers, and it's always wise to do that, because without analogizing to earthly fathers, the idea of a heavenly father wouldn't make any sense. It only makes sense when we understand what fatherhood is. And so God gives us fatherhood in this world that we would have some clue as to what He means when He refers to Himself as Father. But it's only a clue. We have to have an understanding of the idea of fatherhood, and then we have to have an idea if you will, as Plato would say, a perfect fatherhood. Again, it's remarkable how the uh, uh, pagans have understood things that we as Christians fail to grasp. Plato understood that if there's such a thing as fathers in this world, that there would be, by necessity, a perfect father. If there's such a thing as fathers in this world, then somewhere by necessity there must be a perfect father. And so it is that we have a perfect Father in our Heavenly Father. And we see that in Scripture. We see the nature and attributes of who He is. And yet, we need to understand that as God is dealing with various aspects of creation, He deals with them in different ways. And we want to have some understanding of that. 
But as we look at fatherhood, we want to recognize uh, a couple of observations. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, of course you perhaps will recognize this. This is the passage where the people of God come to Samuel and they ask for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 2, they come and they ask for a king. Uh, It's going to build up to that. It actually starts out with the birth of Samuel, the one who's going to anoint the king. And so at the birth of Samuel, we see that the people of that day are not uh, ruled well. They're ruled by a fellow named Eli, a good man. Eli is a very good man. But Eli is old and he has wicked sons. He's old and he has wicked sons. And God sends a prophet to Eli to tell him something about his own fatherhood. This is God telling um, Eli about Eli's fatherhood. Verse 27 of chapter 2. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. He sends this trembling rebuke to Eli. And what we find here is an example of fatherhood. We see here that Eli has sons, and the God of the universe acknowledges that you have honored your sons above me. If you read the passage in its context, it actually indicates that Eli did correct his sons. Eli did correct his sons. He told them they were doing things that were wrong. But apparently he allowed them to continue to function as priests. He, he allowed them to continue to sin against God under his authority in the temple itself, in the tabernacle. And God comes to them and says, Look, you've loved your sons, but you've loved them in inappropriate ways. Your love for them has not been a God-honoring love because a God-honoring love would always have me first. And you have not had me first. You have honored your sons over me. And so one of the first things we see when we think about fatherhood is the idea of two things that go together. One, affection, loyalty to the sons, but affection and loyalty to the sons that is in proper relationship to the God of the universe in proper relationship to the God of the universe. And so we begin to see something of a picture here revealed in Scripture of God, of His own sense of fatherhood. As God is a father, He is perfectly loyal both to His children and to Himself, as only God can do. Later on, we see other examples in Scripture of fatherhood that have uh, strong indications in one way or another. If you recall, uh, David himself uh, loves Absalom. Absalom, one of his sons, tries to uh, uh, usurp the throne. And Absalom works in a very wicked way and tries to take not only David out, but many of his men out. And there's actually a war involved. But David is so fond of Absalom that he gives the command that Absalom should not be killed, but only captured. 
And so we see again there he's favoring his son. Joab, you recall, pulls David aside and says, you have really troubled the people by this because you're indicating that your son is more important than Israel. And so we see examples of that. We see bad examples of fatherhood. Saul tried to kill his own son Jonathan on one occasion. Other kings actually did kill their sons by offering them up to pagan gods. And you recall one of the judges even sacrificed his own daughter, Jephthah sacrifice his own daughter. So we see bad examples of fatherhood of one aspect or another. But what we see in the scriptures over and over again, when we see fatherhood and other aspects of righteousness is this. We see often good things that are carried to extremes. Good things that are carried out of perspective. In the case here with Eli that we began with, you see Eli loving his sons. And is that a good thing? Yes. He's loyal to his sons. Is that a good thing? Yes. He even corrects his sons. But God comes to him and says, you honor your sons over me. And you've crossed the boundary line there and brings a great judgment upon him. And so we want to have some understanding of what real fatherhood is uh, in the Scriptures. But before we come to see a better understanding of what real fatherhood is in the Scriptures, when we think of the fatherhood of God, we want to have some understanding as well of judge, because the two great titles that are confused by the people of God and by the people who are not the people of God are are the titles Father and judge. Martin Luther talked about the great prayer, the Te Deum. If you're not familiar with it, you should find it. You can Google it or find it elsewhere. It's certainly in the prayer book, the Episcopal prayer book. It's called the Te Deum. And Martin Luther called it the most perfect prayer. But in that prayer, it refers to God only as judge. It refers to God as judge. It says you will come to judge the whole world. And indeed, the Bible on numerous occasions, especially in the Psalms and again in Isaiah particularly, but on numerous occasions, the Bible makes reference to God as the judge of all the earth. And he is indeed the judge of all the earth. But listen carefully. He's the judge of all the earth. And for his people, he is the redeemer of his elect. And he's the father of those he has redeemed. He's the judge of all the earth, and for his people, he's the redeemer of his elect, and he's the father of those he has redeemed. And there is a very significant distinction as we look at that. Romans 8.1 is a very famous passage that Christians need to embrace and come to understand, specifically in light of the relationship of father and judge as we look to God. Romans 8.1 says this, There is, therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means in regard to you standing before God, as God being your judge, it's not going to happen. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgeship in regard to God for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we know that? Because Christ has perfectly taken all of that already. You've already been judged. You've already been found dreadfully wanting. And Christ has righteously applied the full extent of the law. God has righteously applied the full extent of the law on a willing and appropriate substitute, even Jesus Christ, your righteousness. It's already happened. Is God your judge? Well, yes, He was your judge. But he vented that fully in space and time on Christ. And he has consumed all of his right and just wrath and he's over it. He is no longer, in regard to his people, judge of his people. He is, however, judge for his people. 
He is judge for His people, and we need to come to understand that as we look at the things of God. As we look at the idea of this distinction... How will He judge His people? It will not be for our sin. Hebrews tells, Christ, tells us Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. It's happened already. So He will not be the judge regarding our, offense, our offenses. But turn to your Bible to Isaiah 49. There are many passages. Isaiah, right in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 49. I want you to see this. It's one of several passages that make reference to this. He will not be the judge of His people, but He will be the judge for His people. Isaiah 49, 26. Isaiah 49, 26. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Do you feel the weight of that? Bob and I have had many conversations about it. Do you remember it's in Hebrews, excuse me, it's in Romans chapter 12, in which he says... Um, that you're not to take vengeance. Romans chapter 12, you're not to take vengeance. He says, I will take vengeance. And we've come to understand that the reason God tells us not to take vengeance because we won't do it right. We won't do it right. Look at that passage in Isaiah 49, verse 26. He says, the people that are messing with you, does he say, I'm going to just slap them on the wrist? I'm going to lecture them? I'm going to send them to an uncomfortable place for a brief period of time? He says that he's going to bring all of his just powers upon them. The people who persecute and hassle the people of God, who wrong them, who slander them, who abuse them, will be brought to great justice by the great judge. God is no longer the judge of his people. He is the judge for his people. And that's dramatically different. That's all the difference in the world. Okay, that means this. It means you move from the side of the defendant, which you were, to the prosecutor's side. You're now the plaintiff. You're no longer the defendant. Your sins have been fully, fully taken care of in Christ. Now you move across the courtroom to the other side, and you're now the plaintiff, pleading with this just God of the universe for a vindication of all the wrongs that have come your way. And the God of the universe says, I'm taking notes. Nothing's mistaken. Nothing is missing my glance. Nothing is passing that I'm not recording and I will deal with it all appropriately. He is not the God in regard to judgeship. He's not the judge of His people. He's the judge for His people. And the other aspect in regard to judgeship is simply the idea of rewarding. Judges reward. They, they give out righteousness to those who do righteously and, and, and vindication or penalty to those who do unrighteously. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we won't take the time to turn to it right now. 1 Corinthians 3 goes into some detail that at the great judgment, those who are the children of God will receive various aspects of rewards. They will receive actual rewards, it says in 1 Corinthians 3. And those rewards will be on the basis of the things that you do in this life. And there will be different rewards for different people based on the grace that God has poured down upon you in this life. As you have served Him, there will be rewards in heaven. That, brothers and sisters, is the critical thing of understanding the judgeship of who God is. Number one, He's not the judge of His people. He's thoroughly taken care of that in Christ. He's the judge for His people in that He vindicates every wrongdoing that has ever been transpired upon the people of God, individually and as a group. And He will be the rewarder of those who seek Him. 
He will be the rewarder of those who seek him. Brothers and sisters, when you read the Bible and you see the aspect of judge, understand that. When you read in the Psalms, when you read in Isaiah and other passages, when you read in Jude and you see God as the God of the judge of all the earth, and he is, recognize it's not you if you're in Christ, but if you're not in Christ, it is you. The judge of all the earth, not you if you're in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, those passages are speaking about you. We need to come to understand that. Now, having understood that aspect, we come to recognize that there is indeed a tremendous relief here of coming to know that we are the children of God. 1 John 3, 1, I quoted it in the prayer this morning, probably one of my favorite passages. I, I think, boy, there are just a, a handful of passages that just leap out to me, but 1 John 3, 1 is, is just one of them. That I just, if somebody said, Bob, what's your favorite passage in the Bible? I'd have to say, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. The person who wrote that has an understanding that, wow, there isn't anything different about me than the people who are going off to judgment. And I hope you grasp that this morning. There isn't anything intrinsically in you than all those people. I have friends, brothers and sisters. I know people who are currently destined for eternal damnation. And they're not any different than I am in the sense of their sin and that type of thing. They're sinners, yes, and they're deserving of judgment. Yes, I understand it, but... But I look at them and I recognize, wow, I, I didn't crawl out of that group. The God of the universe has just taken my name and written the Lamb's Book of Life. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And there it is twice. The Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. God wants us to drink in and to embrace the reality that for the redeemed, He looks upon us as His Father, us as His children, and we should look upon Him as our Father. Do you do that? Brothers and sisters, if you've been confused about that, beginning today, be unconfused. He is not the judge of His people. He's the judge for His people. He is the Father of His people. He is not the Father of of those who are not His people. The judge of those who are not His people, the father of those that are His people. And that's radically different. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see this passage and this concept throughout the New Testament as God graciously makes this clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16 we read this, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. We, the redeemed, are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, that is, from the world. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Not I'll be a judge to you. I'll be a father to you. And you'll be sons and daughters to me. What a remarkable gift. What a remarkable thing. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this and write this and understand this today and for the rest of your lives. Galatians chapter 3 
You know, this is one of the critical things. You remember in Galatians, Paul is writing to the church of Galatia and they begin all over again trying to earn God's righteousness. And that's what gets him so upset. The most upset he is anywhere recorded in Scripture, he's livid as he's writing the book of Galatians. And why is he livid? Because they have lost sight of the glorious good news of the gospel which brought them out of judgeship into the fatherhood of God. And now by their works, they're going back and seeing God as judge. And Paul says, no! It's the fatherhood of God that you need to embrace. The judgeship has been left behind through the merits and blood of Christ. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you have not memorized that verse, brothers and sisters, don't let the sun go down today without memorizing that one, including the reference. Galatians 3.26 For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Look at four, chapter 4 verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're no longer a defendant, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. An heir to all of the riches and love and privilege and fondness and esteem that God can bestow upon His people. Chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 28. Keep following. Verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac are children of promise. Before that, he's been, in some detail, go back and read it in time and and put it in context, he's been talking about the difference between the children of Hagar, who are like seeing God as judge, they're not children of the promise, or the children of Sarah, who are the children of promise. And now in verse 28, talking about the people of God, who are children of the promise, verse 28, and you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. You like laughter. You can't believe it. It's like First John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You can't believe it. Verse 28. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Children. Do you perceive yourself to be children? And verse 31. Chapter 4, verse 31. So you, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. We are children of of God, not defendants before the court of law. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5. Mark this in your Bibles. This is indeed right here. This is what the book of Galatians is about. It's about whether Christians perceive themselves before God. Do they see God as judge or do they see God as father? Do you see God as judge or do you see Him as father? Galatians 5, 1 says this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. You could say it this way. It was for fatherhood that Christ died for us. It was for freedom that we would no longer perceive God as judge. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for fatherhood that Christ set us free. And don't be subject again to a yoke of judgeship. It was for fatherhood that Christ set us free. It was for freedom. And when you begin to perceive 
the fatherhood of God, then the rest of Galatians begins to make sense and you understand why he's so frustrated with them because what they're doing is they're rejecting all of this perfect work of Christ and they're rejecting this now kind, affectionate, fatherly goodness of the one true living God. And they're going back to the old ways of seeing God as a bag of thice waters, just a bundle of switches, just waiting to swat them. And he says, no, no, no. He is the judge of all the earth for the unredeemed. But for the elect, he is their father. And it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for fatherhood that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of judgeship. Receive it, brothers and sisters. Walk in it as a precious promise of God. Don't doubt it. Don't forget it. Don't turn back. God is in control of your sonship and of your adoption. He's in control of your sonship and of your adoption. Turn to your Bibles to 41.10. Isaiah 41.10. You know, it's interesting that the book of Isaiah is divided into two sections. Are you aware of that? Isaiah is divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 39, God is the judge of all the earth. Chapter 40 to the end, God is the father of his people. 1 through 39, he's the judge of all the earth and he names the nations by name and he says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Don't think you can escape from me. Don't think the fact that I'm slowing down or cheering at this point means I'm not coming for you. He names them and he says, I'm coming for you. We're going to have a day of judgeship. We're going to have a day in which we meet. We're going to have a day in which the ground gives way underneath you and I will vent my full just wrath upon you, he says in chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 40 to the end. How does chapter 40 begin? Comfort ye. Comfort ye. Father, come here. Comfort ye. Comfort ye. He begins in chapter 40. 40 to the end. The fatherhood of God for the people of God is what he is. Now look. Look at chapter 41. Well, I'm sorry, go back to chapter 40 for just a second. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, O comfort ye, my people, says God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her judgeship has ended. Where did it end? It ended in Christ. That her iniquity has been removed. Where did that happen? On the cross. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Christ received that in your behalf. So comfort you now. God looks upon you as his children and he receives you and exercises himself as your father. Chapter 41, verse 10. Chapter 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Don't think of me as your judge. I'm not your judge if you're my child. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says to his people, he does not say that to those who are not his people. Verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. It's a father seeing his son in difficulty and he says, I will do everything I can do to help you. And God can do everything. 
I will do everything I can do to help you. And God can do everything. Do you perceive it to be that way? Brothers and sisters, we need to drink that in and we need to understand who God is. In order to understand His fatherhood, we need to understand that unlike Eli, listen to this, we start out with Eli. Unlike Eli, God in His fondness and goodness of fatherhood, not judgeship, will not allow us to continue in rebellion and foolishness. Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and let's put this in perspective. Hebrews chapter 12. Now listen, as we're turning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen carefully to this. Hebrews chapter 12. We started out talking about that he was the judge, but he's not the judge of his people. He's now the father of his people. Hebrews chapter 12 is not, listen carefully, is not a return to judgeship. It's an understanding of what fatherhood is. Listen to that again. He was the judge of all the earth, and he is the judge of all the earth, but not the judge of his people, for he has judged his people in Christ. And he has vented his full and perfect wrath, and he's emptied it. Catharsis. We get the word Catherine from that. Catharsis. He's emptied his full wrath. He's now the father of his people. And Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a full-orbed understanding of his good fatherliness and how he will not allow us to continue in foolishness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. God wants His children to strive against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives, the child of God, when he receives affliction and difficulty from God and correction for his sins, does not look back over to the judgeship of God and say, oh, God is now my judge again. Not at all. He recognizes in Christ and the precious promises of God's word and the covenant faithful of God to his promises. He recognizes God is no longer my judge. And therefore, if consequences and responses are coming as a result of my sin, it's because God is shaping me more and more into that living stone that I might be conformed to the image of His Son. And I receive it and I worship Him and I say, Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad. Whatever is necessary, whatever is good, whatever is right, strike again, remove the birds, polish and polish and polish some more. That's how the child of God looks upon challenging circumstances, not returning to the concept of God as judge. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, And not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Children, listen to this. Will and Catherine and Ben, Sammy and Ellen, listen to this. We have earthly fathers to discipline us. And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good 
so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amen. Our earthly fathers would train us, and God would train us, that we might yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness. Listen carefully to this. For the people of God, God teaches clearly. He warns passionately. He corrects appropriately. And He restores lovingly. Because that's what a father does. He teaches clearly. He warns passionately. What does that mean? His teaching is clear. He says this and not that. He gives you illustrations. He points to the world. He gives you examples. He takes opportunities to see the idea and he points it out to his children. He's teaching clearly. Then he warns passionately. He pulls the child aside. He puts his arms around the child and he looks the child in the eye and he pleads with them that there are going to be severe consequences if they continue in unrighteousness. He warns passionately. And then when he corrects, he corrects whatever is appropriate, whatever is just needed, no more, no less. Not with sarcasm, not with bitterness, not with foolishness and anger and rage, but he corrects appropriately. And then he restores lovingly. He puts his arms around them and he hugs them and he holds them close to himself so that they can hear his heart beating. And he says, I do love you. I do love you. And I'm going to correct you as long as I need to correct you that I might draw you to full sonship. He teaches clearly. He warns passionately. He corrects appropriately. And he restores lovingly. God is sympathetic to us. Psalm 103 says He knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. And it says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord has mercy on those who fear Him. He does so with sympathy and with knowledge and kindness. And finally, He does so with commitment. He does so with commitment. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 12 and we'll finish there. 2 Kings chapter 12. 2 Kings, chapter 12. And we see here the story, the, the recording, the recording of Joash. Joash, you remember, becomes king when he is uh, six years old. Joash becomes king when he's six years old. And he needs some help. If you're king over Israel, you need some help at six years old. If you're king over Israel at 40, you need some help. Chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to this. Joash did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Joash, as long as Jehoiada, the high priest, was instructing him, he did what was right. And the God of the universe lives forever. Jehoiada died and Joash veered off a little bit, got into some trouble. Jehoiada died eventually, the high priest. And Joash the king veered away. But our God lives forever. Our Heavenly Father lives forever. And He will always call us to Himself again and again and again to righteousness. That we would know what's good and right and perfect. 
God is that perfect lighthouse of grace through calm and through storm, calling us to Himself. That perfect lighthouse of grace as our Heavenly Father. Do you this morning perceive God to be the judge of all the earth or the Father of His people? The redeemed, the elect of God, see God biblically on the promises and the blood of Christ as Father. And they rejoice in His love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do praise You this day in Your fatherly goodness. We thank You and acknowledge that because of our sin and the frailty of our flesh and because of the temptations of the evil one, we do veer from time to time back into seeing You as our judge. And we acknowledge before You that because of the Christ work, because of the cross work of Christ, that You are no longer the judge of Your people, but indeed our Father. Bless us then to receive it. Bless those of us who know You and are savingly united by faith and the graces of a Christian life to receive You as Father. And Lord, we do ask that You would grant as well that those who do not know You would recognize that You are indeed the Judge of all the earth. We look forward to the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And we welcome the great day of judgment as we find ourselves folded in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Father, we love You. And we make our prayer in the name of Christ.